happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Did Cool Stuff, your twice-weekly dose of radical history. I'm, I'm now, it's not going to, okay. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. <laughs> this week, my guest is Mia Wong, who is host of the award-winning podcast, It Could Happen Here. You've, you've won awards, right? No? I, I, I don't think anyone who does, who does awards knows we exist. Okay, which well, I, I think uh, it's for the host of the award-losing podcast, <laughs> It Could Happen Here. Although, yeah, if, no, if you're not entered, does that count as losing... Oh, oh that's that a good point. Simply not fighting uh, right. war. We've entered. All right. All right. Never mind. <laughs> We've definitely entered things. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Hell yeah. World losing podcast. Never, We've never even been nominated. <laughs> Ooh, I'm pro- this is probably an award losing podcast you're listening to right now. I have proudly lost two science fiction awards, um, like been nominated, but I like the phrasing award losing i'm your producer and i'm award winning wow i'm so tired that i'm boasting i'm so tired (laughs) that i let myself say that on the internet oh you could fire me i'm okay okay with it i hate myself now (laughs) that's sophie who's the award-winning sophie lichterman how are you doing sophie (laughs) i've slept for like 35 minutes in the last like four days i'm doing great doing really good this is the loopy episode for everyone really this week. <laughs> I like, I almost took a nap, but it was like 30 minutes before record time. And I was like, nope. No. Just yeah, doing I, it. I, I, I slept for 11 hours last night, but not in a row, which uh-huh. has combined uh-huh. to just make me oh, absolutely That's worse feral. than, yeah. Well, our audio engineer is Ian, and our theme music was written for us by Unwoman. This week, we're talking about art street gangs in New York City in the 1960s. You should go back and listen to part one if you haven't, because this won't make a ton of sense otherwise. Where we last left our heroes, there was this small group called Black Mask that ran a magazine called Black Mask, and they did actions, and there had been an anti-war art thing called Angry Arts Week that Mia made me feel much better about, but (laughs) it's all about to get bigger and more motherfuckery. So, all these new artists, they didn't all join Black Mask, because Black Mask was like kind of its own little affinity group or whatever, you know, it has its own thing going on. They started something new and larger and more radical still. And they called themselves up against the wall motherfuckers. Their rationale was this. Well, polite media can't even print our name. See, for example, the name of this episode in your podcast feed. (laughs) (laughs) 
And they figured if mainstream society couldn't even discuss them, then the motherfuckers, as they called themselves, couldn't be co-opted. It's actually pretty clever. Yeah. The name comes from, it comes from a poem by um, Amiri Baraka. I have read this poem. Yeah. It's, it's a, <laughs> go ahead. It, it, it is a trip. You, you should read it. It's, there, yeah. it's, it's a I'm lot. I'm going to quote some of it, but only a little piece. Yeah. The poem's called Black People. Just makes it an interesting name for the people who, whatever, um, the, the white group up against the wall motherfuckers. Well, the majority, actually, once again, hard to entirely know. We'll talk about it more as we go through the racial makeup of this group. Anyway, Amari wrote this poem in Newark during an uprising against police violence. The relevant part of it for this is, quote, you can't steal nothing from a white man. He's already stole it. He owes you anything you want, even his life. All the stores will open if you say the magic words. The magic words are, up against the wall, motherfucker. This is a stick up. Yeah, but you should, you should talk more about the rest of it. I just want to read that quote. Oh, God. You should recite it all from memory. No. <laughs> <laughs> this, okay, I read this six years ago, maybe yeah. seven now. I wanted to find more about what Amiri Baraka thought about the motherfuckers because this is the second time they've, they've referenced him. Black Mask used his picture uh, when they uh, fake assassinated Ken Koch in the last episode. Um, I haven't succeeded yet at finding out what Amiri uh, thought of them. But I do know that overall, the motherfuckers were on very solid terms with the Black Panthers. They coordinated actions together. Like at one point, there was like riots in Harlem. And so the motherfuckers threw a big thing in the Lower East Side so that cops had to leave Harlem and come oh, down and so deal cool. with them. <laughs> yeah, like rather than like showing up to the other people's thing and being like, oh yeah, us too. They were like, all right, well, we'll do a thing. And then New York NYPD is fucked, you know? Yeah, that, that's okay. This is, this is my, this is, okay. I, I, I have two mm-hmm. things about protest. And every time I go on a show, I must say one, right. do not. Okay. The, the first one is not related to this. Stop trying to take over the Brooklyn bridge unless you can secure one of the sides. Mm-hmm. If you don't secure one of the sides, they will like, they will block up both sides of the bridge and arrest. Oh, you. Well, yeah. This has happened three different times in different uprisings in my lifetime. And every single time everyone is goes, this, this is Pikachu face thing. You're like, oh my God, how'd we all get arrested? <laughs> Please stop. That's Just the first don't one. go on bridges. That's how I feel. Yeah, I don't yeah, go or, on bridges. I walk yeah, around it's, them. It's don't <laughs> go like, on nope. bridges unless you can, unless you like really yeah. seriously have like, yeah, you like can hold tens of thousands yeah. of people to hold totally. one side of the bridge. You, you, yeah. Okay. Always have a way to retreat. Mm-hmm. Stop doing this. Please. There will be another uprising <laughs> in my lifetime. If you guys, I will have failed in my mission as a podcaster. <laughs> if you guys all get arrested again on the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay. Uh-huh. So that that's number one. Number two, it's, it's this thing that I, now, I, now I can't remember which police department said it. It might've been LA. It might've been Portland. But yeah, the June 2020, the, the, there was this line that was like, oh, it was LA, can, yeah. Can, yeah, it was LA. Yeah, we, 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 we can stop like one protest of 5,000 people, but we can't stop like 100 protests of 500 people. So like, yeah. please stop sending everyone to one place because that that allows the cops to read the numbers. There actually aren't that many cops. It's just that when, when their numbers are concentrated, they do really well. And if you do stuff like what they're doing, which is you draw you keep drawing cops all over the place, yeah. right? Their command and control system is terrible. Uh, they're not very smart. You can, you know, you can pull apart, but if, yeah. if, if, if you, if you keep just pooling all of your people in one place, you will keep losing. Yeah. So don't, don't do that. Do what these people are doing. It's much smarter. We've gotten worse at this tactically, apparently since the sixties. Uh, um, I know. I mean, they were fairly advanced for their time. Um, but of course, this is purely history. I don't know what you're doing, tying this into the modern <laughs> world. This is just a little slice of history. No one should do any of the, anyway. Yeah, no, totally. Okay. 
And then other things about their interactions, the Black Panthers, and we'll get to more of that too as we go on. But Eldritch Cleaver, who is the leader of the Black Panther Party at this time, asked Ben Morea from Black Masking Up Against the Wall Motherfuckers to be his running mate for president. Oh, cool. Ben turned him down, was basically like, he's quoted a couple different ways over the years. It wasn't like, well, hell no, I'm not. He was like, no, I'm an anarchist. Yeah. (laughs) I can't. Like, not really my thing. Like, thanks, yeah, though. You know? Cleaver's political arc, by the way, is wild. Um, okay. Look that up sometime. He, oh boy, he, he, he takes a wild turn in the 80s. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, time. So, maybe it wasn't weird to people at the time that they named themselves from a poem called Black People. Where I try to, like I've been talking about the whole time, trying to wrap my head around 60-year-old leftist race relations has been an ongoing process. Yeah. They formed. The group soon became an identity. The motherfuckers exist to throw themselves into the fray, to walk the walk. And they also uh, call themselves the family, which (laughs) don't do. There's very few things that I want to say that they did that that don't do now. This is one of them. Don't call yourself the family. There's no relation that they claim to Charles Manson's The Family that was happening around the same time in the West Coast where they were... Yeah, I was going to say, there's definitely some overlap there. There is. And I actually, um, it didn't quite make it into the script. The There was a cultural thing that was happening where basically everyone was being a little bit of edgelords. Uh, the motherfuckers, I didn't see them do as much, but Bernadine Dorn from the Weather Underground mm. at one point um, ended a speech by holding up three fingers, but not in a cool, cool a Hunger Games way or a Boy Scouts way, but like separated out like a little eating fork. And it's a reference to when they killed Tate and some other people, they left forks in their bodies. If you're not up on the Charles Manson thing, he's never going to be on this fucking show because he's not cool. He was a fucking racist trying to start a race war. In case you were wondering, Charles Manson is. He was a cult leader who was trying to start a race war so that he could rule over all the black people in the world. Um, fuck him. Mm-hmm. Anyway... They call themselves the family. Ugh. What a nice little, what a nice little side note we just had. Yeah, I forgot, I forgot what show I was on for a second. <laughs> <Yeah>. there. <laughs> oh like fuck! A... I should do a bastards man. Anyway, um, you should. I feel like that'd be fun. Yeah, because I've been like, I'm just like deep, and there's gonna be a bunch of more episodes about like late '60s shit coming up for you all. Each of them took on the last name motherfucker. So like, you'd be like me, a motherfucker, or I'd be Margaret, motherfucker. Surprise, surprisingly, that works for both of us. I feel like yeah, the, the, totally the alliteration does. game there, very yeah. strong. And I think Sophie, Sophie motherfucker works too. It's actually just a really solid last name. Yeah. Um, I think it sounds cooler if it was motherfucker Sophie, but all right. All right. There's no membership role, uh, of course. Membership was fluid. One person says there was 10 to 15 core members. Another person says there was more like 50. Once again, I have two very opposing sources on all of this. I actually believe the larger number because there was multiple affinity groups within the motherfuckers. Mm. And that was kind of, I think, the big thing that this other person who was in one of the affinity groups isn't referencing in, in his memoirs. So the 10 to 15 was probably one of those groups. They hung out on the streets. They made closest friends with a group of their like closest people that they crewed up with was a group of Puerto Rican street kids who came out to their events, hung out at their crash pads. They also ran with a group of street winos who, following their lead, started their own organization, the Wine Group for Freedom, a.k.a. What? the Wine Nation. <laughs> Wait, that rules so much. Right? I, I, I did not know street winos was a thing. 
I mean, as an organized entity, I was not aware of, but uh, <laughs> I haven't been the furthest from that at some points in my life. <laughs> I was more of a malt liquor street kid, but um, literally in the same streets where all this shit happened. <laughs> Tompkins Square Park. Anyway, as for who they organized with, Ben Maria put it like this, quote, we took LSD and hung out in the streets. So, like, what were we going to do? Were we going to organize students? I couldn't stand students. <laughs> Whether or not this group was patriarchal is another matter of historical debate. Oh, uh, once again, between these two people who don't like each other's <laughs> positions. OSHA says in no uncertain terms that it was patriarchal. Uh, that the women were auxiliary. Uh, that they came and went only based on who they were sleeping with. And that they did, like... A majority of the cooking and cleaning. Ben says in no uncertain terms that it was not patriarchal. I think the answer is complicated. I think that they were as patriarchal as other male radicals at that time. But the thing is, is they actually weren't anywhere near an all-male group. I think that part is actually true. What it was is that as was the style at the time, the women organized separately. Um, in a, and, but it wasn't an auxiliary. It was a separate affinity group. They all took the name like Carol motherfucker and shit like that. And, um, they did their own actions autonomously. Uh, they asked for support from the men. They'd be like, Hey, we're going to go fuck up this speaker. Can you, uh, either come with and support us or stay home and cook dinner so that we have dinner when we get back. And the men did. Cause yeah, e even Osho, when he's like, it was all men. And then he like goes on for paragraphs talking about all this amazing shit that the women did. I think he in retrospect, isn't totally grasping the, the separate organizing that, again, was like more the kind of yeah, way like that people were that, doing identity organizing at the time. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that that's definitely a, like, I don't know, well, like, A, yeah, it's definitely true. Like, 60s groups, their gender politics is, like, not good. Yeah. And it's really bleak reading a lot of the issues and stuff. But, yeah, like, I don't know. People, people did... <sighs> Like the like the, the 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 way that sort of liberation struggles gets framed around that time, I think leads to a lot of that kind of stuff of like everyone has their own sort of liberation movements and they do things within like that thing and they'll sometimes work together. Yeah. But you get a lot of these like I don't know, like I'm I'm most familiar with this with how sort of like Asian American like became a term was a bunch mm -hmm. of these sort of third worldist people who like formed their own like we're gonna be the yellow power group like alongside the black power and we're gonna do this whole thing yeah and it like there's advantages to it there's also i don't know like there's real parts where it gets really bad and like you know like part of the reason none, none of this stuff exists anymore really in the u.s and why asian american doesn't you know has nothing to do with the sort of radicalism mm -hmm. anymore in terms of how people think about it was like well okay so it turns out that like if if if, if your sort of group basis is supposed to be like the third world tm and you know you 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 have a bunch of you have a bunch of people who are sort of like Chinese nationalists and Cambodian nationalists and Vietnamese mm -hmm. nationalists all trying to work together, and then China, Cambodia, and Vietnam go to war with each other. Oh um, yep, uh -huh. <laughs> you're in real bad shape. This is this is the whole uh -huh. thing too with like this this is like like a lot of these sort of Maoist groups get into real trouble. For example, because the CCP starts supporting like the wrong side of the civil war in Angola. Okay, like, they're 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 backing a rebel group. That eventually, the US South Africa backs. Like this is like a real. I know, I'm sorry. I'm kind of going on a tangent. No, here, no, there's, no. But there's it's interesting. Real, yeah. Like, there, there, there are a lot of real issues with the the the, the way that American movements are sort of sh are, are supposed to be shaped as these sort of mirror images of these national liberation movements. But then when those movements go to war with each other, it yeah. really messes everything up. And 
that that has a lot of sort of like and it has a lot of downstream effects on, on a lot of these groups and also i don't know like it's why i don't think it's actually like a great organizing model yeah really because no, it I mean, creates a lot of problems it's so interesting because yeah like they're you know, we, we, we run into, all the time we run into the limits of identity-based organizing, but at the same time, when we, like, subsume our identities to be part of these, like, um, these groups, we can also then sometimes, like, lose something valuable as well. And it's, like, this, like, yeah. fun tension that I guess we've been struggling with for fucking ever, you know? Yeah, and I guess, I guess my, my one thing about that, like, do, like don't do it if 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 you're if you're gonna do a thing and we're gonna be, like, we're gonna forge identity around this, don't do it off of, like, the politics of another country. Because you yeah, are, that is fair. that is going to come back to bite you in ways that you were yeah. not prepared for. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I didn't write down a ton of the actions that happened specifically by some of the women, but it was like all the stuff we're talking about was a bunch of different affinity groups doing all of this different stuff. But Carol, motherfucker, at one point she was breastfeeding in public, and a cop was yelling at her for breastfeeding in public, so she whipped out her tit and squirted him with breast milk in the face, <laughs> and that just rules. And that is yeah. right. Motherfucker. I'm glad you did that do. then and not now, so we don't have to read the discourse about it because I feel like it'd be terrible. Yeah. But I just think that's funny. Yeah. No, totally. <laughs> so oh, God. And another way in which they were engaged in militant feminist struggle Valerie Solanus was one of their hanger ons and close friends with many in the group. Valerie Solanus is famous for two things. She's famous because she wrote a book called The Scum Manifesto which is the manifesto for a group called the Society for Cutting Up Men, which is as misandristic as it gets. It is a male exterminationist pamphlet uh, or book and a very interesting read, frankly, when it's taken as hyperbole. It's very interesting. Second, she's famous because she shot Andy Warhol. But she didn't kill him in one job. <sighs> you know, I mean, to, to be fair, she, she did more than the rest of us. She, she, she got farther than anyone else did, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you'll like the motherfuckers. Uh, the movie about her is called I Shot Andy Warhol. In the movie, they actually basically claim that Ben from the motherfuckers gave her the gun. He vehemently says that this is not true. What <laughs> happened instead was that... I, I hope that... But, but what happened instead was that she climbed... We'll talk about some of this other shit later. They were occupying Columbia University. She climbs in through the window and she's like, Hey, hey, Ben, what would happen if I shot somebody? And Ben's like, you know, it really depends on, on who you shoot and whether or not they die. And she's like, oh, okay. And then climbs out the window. No! They and saved goes Andy, and shoots Warhol. Andy Warhol. No! So, let's oh, talk about I can't Valerie like them anymore. Wait, you can't like them? No, because they, 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 they derailed fully killing Andy Warhol. Oh, oh, no, I don't, I don't think she shot to not kill. I think she was just giving honest oh, lawyer advice. Oh, just didn't work, yeah. I don't know reasonable all right let's talk about valerie valerie grew up really fucking rough she was born in 1936 uh, she suffered physical and sexual abuse from her family when she was a kid this rules she sold insults for a living on the playground like Wait, that's you, awesome <laughs> if you wanted like a really sick burn you'd go to valerie and give her a dime and she'd write you a really good <laughs> insult to use against another kid which is about a dollar or so today at that's one point so based i know i love that at one point, she beat up a bully who was, like, picking on a younger kid. Another point, she beat up a nun. I don't know what for. Oh I don't know what deserved it. Her life was hard as fuck. She was homeless at 15. 
Uh, she had a kid when she was 17 that was taken away from her and given up for adoption, I think without her consent. She worked her way through college, I believe through sex work, but I know she did sex work later, and I'm not 100% certain at what point she began doing sex work. She got herself a degree in psychology, ran a radio show at her college campus where she gave listeners advice about how to beat up men who are fucking with them. She lived openly as a gay woman in the fucking 1950s. Yes. She moved to New York City. She kept hustling or started hustling. Um, and she wrote a bunch of stuff, including a play about a man-hating sex worker who kills a guy called Up Your Ass. <laughs> and she tried to get Andy Warhol to stage the play. He claimed he lost the script, but then he hired her to perform in one of his films, which she did. Then she decided it was an attempt to steal her work, so she shot him. There's like more to it than that, but not a lot more than that. It's very complicated. And also, um, she's not... Um, uh, she's not neurotypical in a lot of different ways. He survived. Andy Warhol survived. Uh, she turned herself in. She said I, that she shot Andy Warhol because he had too much control over her life. She was diagnosed with schizophrenia. I've got complicated feelings about the Scum Manifesto. If you take it as yeah. hyperbole, as hyperbole, it's really interesting. It's basically like patriarchy is really fucking bad to women and violent resistance is an understandable thing to consider. And for the longest time, I assumed it was intended as hyperbole because it's like, nah, you can't. Like, clearly, I mean, look at this. You know, it seems like she both did and didn't mean it as hyperbole. Most of the shit, it is messy. It depends on who you ask. And sometimes it depends on when you ask the people you ask. Ben has given conflicting answers to this question. How does this tie into the motherfuckers, you might ask? I'm glad you asked. She wasn't one of them, but she hung out sometimes. And Ben let her crash with him because she was homeless. They actually met because um, Ben was selling black mask on the street. And she was like, well, I don't got a nickel. And he was like, I don't care. Have it. And then she took it. And she was like, oh, wait, hold on. And she walked into the bookstore that they were hanging out in front of, stole a copy of her own book, came out, and gave it to, to Ben. And Ben was like, clearly you're fucking awesome and we should be in each other's lives. And she clearly wasn't dating any of them. She's clearly the kind of person who shot, with, shot anyone who fucked with her. Ben describes the Scum Manifesto this way. Quote, There was a lot of parody and irony in her writing, but she was also, and I don't mean this in a bad way, a fairly crazy person. She saw a need to raise a lot of issues around what happens to women, and the Scum Manifesto was the best way she could express herself. Um, and I feel like that's the best summation about Scum Manifesto and the intentions behind it that I've been able to find. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. I don't like I feel, it, it, it's it's definitely one of those things that's like very complicated historical document mm -hmm. and th there have been some people who have used it to ha have some really really bad politics. Yeah. Which um yeah. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's like I I don't want to write it off like completely as a thing, but yeah, there's I don't know. You, there are some there's some real weird turf stuff that people have like used that for which yeah. don't do that. Uh it's bad. No, and like and and misandry in general is like actually a very negative thing and it negatively impacts everybody and it is like I as a recovering misandrist um I think that uh it's important to I I really like the the more inclusive frameworks where we talk about like um, the ways in which patriarchy hurts everybody and it hurts some people more than it hurts other people. But um, I think overall that is uh, the winning both ethically and strategically attitude to have. But um, I think it's interesting to read.
I think it's an interesting argument to say, look how bad things are, even if I don't agree with it. I also haven't read it in about 20 years. So she gets arrested. Well, you know what else will get you arrested? Not taking advantage of these <laughs> screaming deals of stuff. Here's some stuff. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year. And what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back from that totally natural. (laughs) Sophie has this like... Two thumbs up, you did great. Totally doesn't have her hand on her forehead, shaking her head. Not at all. I would never lie to you, dear listeners. Oh, I can't lie to you. It was all a lie. Sophie was shaking her head. That was perfect. What are you talking about? No notes. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Ben wrote a pamphlet supporting her after her arrest. Probably the only public support for shooting this artist. Uh, he went up to the MoMA and he passed out a pamphlet supporting the woman who had just shot New York City's art darling with the quote, Valerie is ours on it, signed the motherfuckers. Um, to quote Ben, yeah, to quote Ben Moore from an interview he did years later, he was helping to destroy the whole idea of creativity and art. Some people dislike the term, but I feel that creativity is a kind of a spiritual act, a profound thing for people to do. Warhol was the exact opposite. He tried to deny and purge the core of creativity and put it on a commercial basis. As a person, he was really despicable as well, and that's why Valerie hated him. 
He used and manipulated people. Yeah, and I, I really like I, I have a like like near fanatical hatred of that guy. I oh man, <laughs> you're the oh. right guest then. Okay, one of my favorite things about working with Mia is finding out the people that she hates, and it's so it's so funny because yeah. she's always right. She's always fucking right. It's so funny, and then it's really funny when we randomly hate the same person. It's so beautiful. What a time. Tom Brady, et cetera, Tom. et cetera. <laughs> I have no idea who Tom uh, Brady is. Oh, that's so nice. Stay there. Uh, Stay there. Yeah. Be, be like Ichiro. Is he a football player or a writer or a talking head? Definitely not a writer. Those are my three guesses. Were any of them right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. Anyway, back to the motherfuckers. Because I don't know anything about what's happening in the normal world. I know about weird <laughs> shit that proto-punks did with switchblades in the 1960s on the Lower East Side. Much cooler. They were a group now, a gang, usually staying on the non-cult side of the Is This a Cult line. Their first action under their new name was in February 1968. The Lower East Side was in the middle of the sanitation workers' strike. So there was garbage piled up everywhere. Uptown was all sparkling and clean. So the motherfuckers grabbed a whole bunch of garbage and bags, had a parade with kazoos and black flags, and of course flyers, went to the subway, took the subway up to Lincoln Center for Performing Arts on the Upper West Side, dumped all the garbage on the steps while a a phalanx of cops were guarding the place. Their flyers read, we propose a cultural exchange, garbage for garbage. (laughs) Wait, I didn't, I I knew about that action. I didn't know it was these guys. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. No, they did fucking everything. There's some shit they did in here that uh, I was like, whoa, that was them. Yeah. <laughs> Most of their day-to-day work, like every cool group that we talk about, is mutual aid. Most of the thing that they did day in and day out was take care of people and each other. They set up free stores where you could go in and everything in a store is free. Uh, they set up crash wait, pads. Mm-hmm. What? Uh, wait, okay. Sorry, this is sort of not helpful. They, they didn't invent that, right? That, that's an older thing than them? So I am aware of, at the same time, the diggers on the West Coast, who were also anarcho-hippies, but in a very different set style, also setting up free stores. So I presume this predates them or is something that was happening counterculturally at the time. But I don't know. They set up crash pads, which was another big countercultural thing, where basically it was like a, you can show up and sleep here. Um, sometimes they're squatted, sometimes they're rented. Uh, They had huge community feasts in the courtyard of St. Mark's Church for 300 to 400 people several nights a week. And I really like this because it gives me a sense of continuity because decades later, the fences of St. Mark's Church were where thousands of us took refuge from police who were attacking us during the 2004 Republican National Convention. I feel like, okay, Mm -hmm. people ask a lot about sort of like, what, what parts of like European white culture should anyone like do and my my one answer to that is mm-hmm. you need to you guys need to bring back the like the the, the medieval peasant feasting schedule oh like, yeah that was they, they, that was like one every three days or something like at, at, at its height in like the four, like the 1500s yeah. like you that that's the one that's the one bring the feasts back yeah no we can like, do this i mean the 12 one of the most recent episodes we did on the 12 days of christmas it's just 12 days of parties and, yeah, it rules. and, and all the and all the rules can, are gone and you can just do whatever you want and yeah just look, we just, just keep putting more of them. Yeah. In one day, yeah. we'll have 365 days. Yeah. Yeah. Once we have 364 days a year of Christmas, then things are chill. And we can all work for a day, you know? It'd be like a nice break. So 
they had movement lawyers and doctors on retainer to provide free services to to people. Um, they helped draft dodgers, get new IDs, and help get people across the border. And just basically, like, if there's, like, illegal lefty shit that needs to happen, they're there, right? And they let anyone use their mimeograph machines. And so, like, a lot of these, like, flyers, there's different affinity groups of motherfuckers, and they don't have, like, a central committee where they're like, oh, you can't put out that one unless it's approved by everyone or whatever, right? And they would let people just, like, come in and use their things to make propaganda. One thing I found really sweet this is something specifically that Ben did. Other people might have done it too. But again, I only have two people's voices about all of this, you know? And so that's why it focuses a lot on, on these two characters. Kids who are having bad trips could come to the motherfuckers and Ben would sit down with them, take acid, meet them where they're at, and bring them out of bad trips. Oh. And they scammed and shoplifted everything they needed. Uh, since they were opposed to the commercialization of the countercultural life, they'd shake down psychedelic shops to ask for contributions <laughs> to the cause. <laughs> they'd be like, hey, you're making some money off the movement. You should kick some of it back. And they would hit up groceries for day-olds. And at one point, so this is a story I don't have a source for. This is, um, I've hung out a lot in New York, and so I have some stuff like orally that I cannot source. So please treat this as a rumor. Um, it's not a very big radical thing. I just want to always point out when I'm like less certain about something I'm saying. At one point, they're like getting day olds at some gro- uh, like uptown, like or midtown or something, like some fancy grocery store, and uh, or like something they're digging to the garbage or whatever, and they get told to fuck off. And they were like, "We see that your store has all of its windows. Isn't that cool? Isn't that <laughs> awesome that your store has all of its windows?" I, I hope your store always has all the windows. <laughs> and then they were like, all right, fine, you can have our trash. <laughs> it rules. And they wore black biker jackets and carried switchblades. I can see why they didn't like getting called hippies. Yeah. And basically, they protected the homeless youth dropout culture. They wrote, make love, but prepare for war. The cops constantly fucked with them. They would constantly bust their crash pads looking for drugs. They would harass street kids and dropouts. And the motherfuckers would organize demos and riots to fight back against those busts, all while churning out more and more poetic manifestos about the pigs and stuff. And one motherfucker walked around panhandling with a toilet he'd grabbed off from the trash, saying, America shits money, shit here. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking artists. And a cop made him drop the toilet and then smashed it up and then arrested him for littering while the crowd screamed and chanted, free the toilet. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) One of the only sources I found that actually discusses the racial makeup of some of their events was actually a police source. They threw a 24-hour spring feast at one point, sort of a big drug and music gathering at a four-floor flop house. And people were like, just like fucking in the hallway, kind of under a blanket. And people were like, playing drums on trash and doing drugs and shit. Sounds fun, honestly. I'm not even into drugs, but whatever. An undercover report says there was about 100 people in attendance, about evenly split between black people and white people. I suspect that this leaves out Puerto Rican membership, or rather classifies as Puerto Rican membership, not by their ethnicity, but by their perceived race by the police officer, with some of those Mm. people ending up in the white category and some people ending up in the black category. Um, yeah, it makes sense. That's my best understanding of uh, race and ethnicity around uh, Puerto Rican identity at the time in eyes of the state. So that's that's what we know 
some of the racial makeup of some of their events. They had this long campaign to pressure the rock promoter Bill Graham, who ran the Fillmore. And they wanted him to let the motherfuckers or the dropout community at large have free events at the Fillmore once a week. Basically, it was like, it's the same thing. It's like, you're making money off of our culture, off of psychedelic culture. So you're going to give, you're going to kick something back to the community. We get one night a week where it's free. And he was like, no, that's not fucking happening. I'm not going to do that. And so there was threats involved on both sides. Um, and actually, one of these things where no one remembers exactly, at one of the meetings, someone pulled out bullets and put them on the desk. And no one remembers which side pulled out the bullets <laughs> and put them on the desk. Amazing. Partly because either side would have done it. Yeah. <laughs> and eventually they win. And either Wednesday or Thursday, everyone's memory's fucked, becomes free nights. And this lasts a month. Uh, there's free bands and free drugs at all of the things. And the cops are like, if this goes on, the Fillmore will never open its, its doors again. <laughs> uh, and it stopped. They stopped getting the free nights. The, the, man, the man shut them down. They were part of the national movement to stop the war as well. These are the folks who were like, the Vietnam War is going to stop or we're going to die. Like, those are the only things that are going to happen. And the war in Vietnam was happening in their names as Americans, and it was their duty to stop it. Some of the motherfuckers went to the 1967 exorcism of the Pentagon, which is when um, like the yippies and other people were like, we're going to levitate the Pentagon, and people put flowers in the barrels of guns and... The motherfuckers instead cut open the chain link fence and stormed into the Pentagon. <laughs> they, they all got arrested for it. Um, not that many of the crowd came with them. They joined the SDS at some point, this too. The SDS is the Students for Democratic Society, which is way more radical than its name sounds, at least then. Can't actually speak to it now. I'm not really part of its organizing now. Obviously, the motherfuckers tended not to be students and tended to be more radical than what gets talked about as democracy by most people today. Yeah. Although, to be fair, most of the SDS people were also like... Right. Exactly. <laughs> a lot of Maoists in that group. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And while they were, they were druggy, hippie, artsy revolutionaries, they were actually very distinct from the yippies, who were kind of the other druggy, hippie, artsy revolutionaries at the time. Abby Hoffman, et cetera, we talked about last time a little bit. Specifically in that they were never media darlings, and they stayed the fuck away from the limelight and they had an unrepeatable name and a non-compromising attitude. And I personally think successful movements are made up of like a variety of strategies and tactics, including both like the people who are willing to be lefty media darlings. Um, maybe I say that because I'm a fucking podcaster. I don't know. <laughs> but like, it's still, there's something more beautiful in a lot of ways about how the motherfuckers handled it. And they really pushed in their interactions with Black Struggle it fits very well into the kind of modern idea of accomplices, not allies, that comes out of modern indigenous uh, anarchic thought, which is to say that rather than being united by struggle, um, or we should be united by struggle, not just passively supporting someone else's struggle. We should work in solidarity with other struggles rather than seeing ourselves as purely as some separate support role. Um, basically, like, figure out what you need to fight for and fight for it alongside of and in conjunction with another struggle. One of their flyers was headlined, we don't support the black struggle. Support is not struggle. Support is the evasion of struggle. And, um, and in this way, they prefigure a lot of the ways that the conversation is starting to happen now, which I find really interesting. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting, it's a cool way of thinking about it. Yeah. 
And like, and what matters to me, of course, is like, if you're going to frame things that way, how do the Panthers feel about it? And like, overall, um, it seems like the Panthers, I am only aware of positive interactions between the motherfuckers and the Panthers. I'm sure there were negative interactions as well. But overall, it seemed like a very positive uh, coalition from time to time or whatever. And they were like, look, overall, I think they're cool people did cool stuff, but some of them were not always the most mature people. At an SDS conference, the motherfucker Osha, the the one who wrote the I hate I hate that I did all this book, which to be fair, some of the shit that he did, I'm like, yeah, I hate that you did that too. He took the mic during some debate about Maoism versus the new left, and he dropped his pants so his like dick is hanging in the wind. <laughs> and he is like, This is all too much intellectual masturbation. You know, I he's got I'm with you in spirit, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be fair, if, if you've ever read any of the transcripts of the SCS stuff or like read, like, like seen like the, 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 the accounts of like half the crowd is chanting Ho 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 Chi Minh and half the, cha- the crowd is chanting Chairman Mao, like these guys, I. Oh, God. Oh, they're, God. They're somehow like, and I say this like having been in the DSA, I was uh-huh. in the DSA for like a long time. Yeah. Like these guys are like a lot of that stuff is more insufferable than the, than the stuff that was happening in the DSA, which is like really impressive. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Fair. No. No. It's like. Yeah. I'm like. I'm. I'm with you in spirit. I bet there was too much intellectual masturbation happening. Just. Just. Yeah. I don't know about. Just keep your pants on. Uh, yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh. Yeah. And. And after the conference, they wrote a report, and I'm going to quote it because it's the first thing I ever saw from the motherfuckers when I was a baby radical. Chapter report on the SDS Regional Council of March 10th. A Molotov cocktail is a bottle filled with three parts one part It is capped and wrapped with soaked with to use, light throw bottle. Fire and explosion occur on impact with target. A white radical is three parts bullshit and one part hesitation. It is not revolutionary and should not be stockpiled at this time. Respectfully submitted, up against the wall, motherfucker. It's probably the best thing to come out of an SDS conference. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) Okay, so what what are the... Okay, some of the other shit they did. When the Secretary of State came to New York, he was met by motherfuckers who had plastic bags filled with cow's blood, with which he and his entourage were covered. Amazing. And then this is the one that I was like, damn, this was them. In 1969, there was this concert you might have heard of called Woodstock. They didn't organize Woodstock. Okay, Woodstock famously got rowdy because someone cut the fence and people stormed in and the event was suddenly free. Wait! (laughs) You will be shocked. Absolutely shocked to know. That was was some motherfuckers. Oh, amazing. And when it rained and it got real cold and everyone's like kind of fucked because everyone's like covered in mud and everything sucked, they cut open the back of a supply tent and passed out free sleeping bags that they stole. Amazing. And another thing they did, and this goes back a year, but I just wanted to point out the Woodstock thing. In 1968, after the assassination of Martin Luther King, Columbia University students, led by the SAS, the Student Afro-American Society, and supported by the SDS, the Students for Democratic Society, they took over six buildings on campus and briefly held the dean hostage. And the motherfuckers were all over it. They they led the takeover of the math building, which was like the most 
of the the different buildings had like different like cultures during the takeover and the math building was like, I don't know, those motherfuckers are sketchy. I'm not sure, you know? (laughs) Um, And at one point, some jocks besieged the library because people had taken over the library and these like jocks or people use these. It's like what we would probably call chuds now, you know, like um, right-wing people who want to fight left-wing people. Um, So we come up with disparaging terms for them. Uh, Some jocks besieged the library and they formed a ring around it to keep the occupiers from entering or exiting and to keep them from getting supplies like groceries because they figured the hippies wouldn't know how to fight. They might have been right, (laughs) but the motherfuckers knew how to fight. (laughs) So they climbed out of the math building with groceries in their arms, broke the siege, and brought groceries (laughs) into the library. Amazing. And uh, and then this is another one that I, I read this, but years ago, and I could not, I cannot find the source again. So consider this apocryphal. But this was the other thing that I read about the motherfuckers where I was always like, I like these people. During the occupation, while they were building barricades, the motherfuckers wanted to use all the ancient pottery <laughs> in the barricades because they figured the police won't break through ancient Grecian urns to fuck us up. (laughs) Amazing. And if they do, the photos will be terrible. Oh. But they were outvoted by everyone else who was like, oh, that's so sad. I know. This this whole thing reminds me so much of like the the dynamics of like the Japanese version of this. Like, yeah, it's almost exactly like right right Mm -hmm. down to literally you have you you have a you you have a bunch of like nerds who are trying to hold a building and then like the 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 campus administration will try to use a bunch of jocks with sticks to try to break the occupation yeah. but they can't do it because it's 1968 Japan and every single person in <laughs> like below down. the age of 35 knows, is is like a master street fighter <laughs> it's Japan <laughs> that rules yeah i and actually if people want to know more about that they can find your episode do you remember what it's called or how to oh, search, God. how someone could search for it and find it if they want to hear about these, uh, some of those Japanese oh, student to... movements. Oh, I, I think it was, I, I think it's in part three of my series about Nobushuki Kishi. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's what people should yeah, go. Well, go listen to the whole, the whole many parts. Yeah. Of well, it. by the way, just warning on that part. It's well, part one also, but part two of that is absolutely brutal. Um, it's yeah. one of the worst things I've ever done and I've ever read. Uh, yeah, so warned on that, but part three has a lot of people just <laughs> whacking each other with sticks. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, can you, uh, this is awful, but can you spell the name so people can search it? I actually really want people to hear oh, that. Oh yeah, thing. this is Behind the Bastards and it's N-O-B-U-S-U-K-E and then Kishi, K-I-S-H-I. Cool. I, I think, I think that the episode was titled like, yeah, the, the slavery-loving fascists who built, who built modern Japan. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's not one of our sponsors, but although, I don't know, I wonder if Behind the Bastards ever ends up advertised on this show. I'm not sure. Cool zone like a void. Oh, okay. If there's like an event, maybe. Okay. But in general, not really. But we are sponsored by the concept of if you are not currently carrying your firearm, it needs to be locked the fuck up. If you want to be someone who carries a owns a firearm, which not everyone should be, but some people choose to for very good reasons in this very dark and troubled world that we live in, they need to be locked the fuck up when you are not carrying them directly on your person. That is the new... I'll go back to fun stuff at some point. Here's some other stuff. 
happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. And so the motherfuckers, they are a, um, a star that shone brightly and not for incredibly long, much like late 60s radicalism in general. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some groups managed to hold on into the mid 70s, although usually by going underground and having very different tactical ideas. The slow end of the motherfuckers was a little bit hard to trace, much like everything about, about these motherfucking motherfuckers. Everyone has faulty memories. All the books are biased. Repression was a big part of it, no matter what, no matter who you ask. They were starting to become, well, uncontrollable. They were blocking off entire blocks from the police. So police had started hitting harder everywhere they could. Like, basically, the Lower East Side was starting to become more and more of an autonomous zone in a lot of ways. Um, And arrested folks were getting brutalized in jail. And I, I believe the the Puerto Rican uh, street kids when they arrested got the the worst of that. The Some of the motherfuckers were indicted, and, and actually it's worth pointing out that at this point, by this point, it seems like, and I'm not certain about this, but by the names of the motherfuckers who are listed and, and the different things that I've read, it seems like the majority of the motherfuckers are now actually um, uh, Puerto Rican folks. And... Some of the motherfuckers were indicted in the Chicago 1968 Democratic National Convention protests. And these are like these like felony, bad shit charges. Uh, Ben didn't even make it all the way to Chicago because the feds were stopping every blue VW bus they saw with like a picture of him (laughs) trying to trying to grab him before he got there. 
Yeah. And in New York, the mean streets were getting meaner. Hard drugs started to replace LSD. Uh, instead of happy, drunken, fun times, it became mean, drunken, mean times. There was more like broken bottle fights and less utopian visioning. At one point, a car of dudes rolled up on Ben, and, he, and they were like, hey, we've been hired to kill you. We're going to kill you now. And then like 15 people showed up to Ben to support Ben, and Ben was like, okay, let's see what you got. And the guys were like, no, never mind. We changed our mind. We're actually going to leave. Oh, boy. <laughs> and there was a tension. This one fascinated me. There was a tension between the East Coast LSD movement and the West Coast LSD movement. And you would think, based on like aesthetics and shit and like reputation, the West Coast LSD movement with its tie-dye and its peace and love and stuff versus the East Coast movement, which is like black biker jackets and handguns, you know, you're like, all right, Clearly, the West Coast LSD folks are nicer. No. No. The West Coast LSD movement, uh, exemplified by Ken Kesey, thought dosing people without their consent was cool and good. The East hmm. Coast movement, who weren't pure fucking evil, and let's be clear, dosing people yeah. without their consent is pure yeah. fucking evil. It's CAA shit. Yeah, I fucking hate you forever if you do this, is exemplified by Timothy Leary and supported by the motherfuckers who all knew each other. And this is actually apparently part of why Timothy Leary and Ken Kesey fell out. Good, fuck. Anyway, whatever. I read about that and I was like, holy shit. That rules that the fucking proto-punks in the jackets were the ones who were like, no, what the fuck is wrong yeah. with you? Um, we believe in this shit. We believe in acid. We believe in opening the doors of perception, but we believe in a very different way than you. Yeah, which, which, is, which is interesting because it's like, you know, if, if you look at what happened to these guys as ideological successors, it's the punks who were yeah. like, still cool to this day and the, the ideological successors of the West Coast people are like Peter Thiel <laughs> and like a bunch of people who vote Republican I mean, every year. There are cool hippies and I actually think that That's some true, of the yeah. like, um, especially some of the like rural and lower class uh, like hippie and burner and psytrance and like there are, there are actually these like really interesting people who are like kind of like still really on the psychedelic page in a, a kind of interesting way but I don't know. I don't know why I just suddenly got really defensive of hippies. <laughs> defensive. Um, some of my friends are poor hippies and they rule. Yeah, actually, my, my aunt, well, okay. Mm -hmm. So my, my aunt and my uncle who are married to each other, my aunt was a flower child mm -hmm. and my uncle was an SDS as like a high schooler. <laughs> and they have some, they've did, they, they got up to some stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I don't know. I feel like I got both of the sort of like, both I, I got exposed that. to both the cool hippies and also the like, what are you guys doing hippies? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I have like a bad hippie taste in my mouth. No, fair enough. I mean, who doesn't have a bad hippie taste? In <laughs> now I'm like, okay. Anyway, uh, the jokes, they write themselves in you, the listener's mind. So uh, shit's getting rougher and rougher on the Lower East Side. Violence is getting more regular from the police and from anti-hippie crews. Um, and actually... The, the motherfuckers started going to Boston to defend the freaks there because the freaks there were hanging out in these parks and were getting jumped by chuds, basically. Uh, 1960s chuds. Marines and crews of right-wing dudes who were, while well, they're just trying to hang out in the park or whatever. So the motherfuckers show up and are like, all right, well, well, we'll defend you. And they fight. It's like these like weird fucking sharks versus jets. It's like knives versus baseball bats. The like motherfuckers have oh, knives boy. and the Marines have baseball bats. And uh, Ben gets arrested for stabbing one of these people. Uh, he spends two weeks in jail. 
And he gets found not guilty by way of self-defense. Um, a single juror held out and convinced the other 11 jurors who originally were like, yeah, fuck him. Um, the single juror held out and was like, no, uh, it's self-defense. Which I guess we should, we should put in a plug here for two things. One, uh, if, if, you, if you ever are doing jury duty and you get you actually have to do it, uh, you can be that juror. And the second thing is Google jury notification. Yeah. I'm so annoyed that I can't just write a letter back and be like, I am an anarchist. This won't work. I have to like, I would have to like show up before they would be like, oh, wait, no, never mind. We don't want you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. You have to show up and say jury notification like 12 times. <laughs> yeah. And then you can go home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, I mean, or do jury duty if, if, you can whatever um remind me remind me to tell you my really fun jury duty story haha <laughs> you all don't get to listen to it only ben and uh, ben ben's the character in that <laughs> only <laughs> me and me i get to hear it so they go and they're, they're defending hippies in other places uh but they get more and more street gang in kind of a bad way um which is Pretty much always a problem when organizing along these lines. I think that actually one of the things that's really interesting about 1960s, 1950s movements is you get a lot of uh, really rad shit coming out of gangs and then also disappearing back into bad shit. Um, And there's like this interesting tension that has always been the case within U.S. gang culture of people being like, oh, we can have power, but in what context, in what ways? Yeah, I mean, I I think I've talked about this before on other mm-hmm. shows, but I mean, there's there's a huge example of this in Brazil, which is there, there's a group called Red Command, mm-hmm. which used to be this like Marxist-Leninist like internal prison movement that just sort of like stopped being a Marxist-Leninist group and is just a gang now. Yeah, yeah, and is very it's very very bleak. Yeah, yeah, this happens. I don't know. It, it's just it's just sort of like a dynamic that happens when. You have a bunch of people who are armed, and also there's now drug money. Yeah, that that can that that yeah. that can lead very bad places. Uh, yeah, don't don't fund your movement via drug money. Um, yeah, <laughs> bad idea. And you know what's interesting is I actually haven't found any information that the motherfuckers were actually involved in uh, in dealing. I I have no idea. Clearly, drugs were happening in large scale, and they were distributing drugs in large scale. I believe largely for free, and I think they were funding. I think. But people haven't talked about the specifics of this in a way that's accessible to me. It seems like they were using petty theft in order to buy the drugs to give to people rather than selling drugs. And But I don't yeah. know. But yeah, no, it's in general. It's a better like, model, but yeah. yeah I yeah. don't know. Because it didn't, in the end, it was not sustainable for where they were in New York. Um, it started getting more and more gang violence stuff. At one point, their uh, their main crash pad, one of the affinity groups, their main crash pad burned down and they like started crashing in a rented apartment some of the like kids in the group were graffitiing the hallway. So the landlord threw acid into the kid's face uh, and permanently disfigured him. So they, Jesus. so they killed the landlord and that's just some bad escalation of bad shit. And from my point of view, six years later, I wasn't fucking there. Soon two new gangs moved into the area, biker gangs and all three went to war and the motherfuckers were like, it's time to get out. So, so they relied on their countercultural connections. The living theater, the anarcho-pacifists who kind of got some of them into anarchism, they got, they got them a school bus. Uh, the guy who named the Yippies, his name's Paul Krasner, got them $3,000 for gas and expenses, which is actually a fuck ton of money. Um, yeah. And they, they filled up the bus with motherfuckers, especially the street kids, apparently. 
um, because part of their whole thing was that they were like trying to take care of this homeless youth, right? And they headed out to New Mexico. And what's really funny, oh, and actually, and a year earlier, he'd actually taken a bunch of kids out to California, like um, dropout kids. In one version of the story, he stole credit cards and bought a bunch of cars. In another version of the story, he just stole a bunch of cars. I don't know. He, <laughs> that rules. He, he crimed himself some cars, drove the kids somewhere safe, let them be, and then drove back to where he wanted to keep being in a weird fucking street, art street gang. Um, when they go to New Mexico, all these hippies are moving to New Mexico to join the peace and love hippie communes that are starting to crop up there. This is not where the motherfuckers go. <laughs> no. They went to go join a Chicano movement, a militant movement called Alianza Federal de Mercedes, um, or Alianza Alliance for short. And uh, Alianza was trying to restore land rights to indigenous people who had been displaced by Spanish conquest and like restore some shit as related to um, when the U.S. stole New Mexico from Mexico, which they had stolen from the indigenous people. Two years earlier... Alianza had raided a courthouse, freed prisoners, killed a jailer and a cop, and then gotten away. <laughs> Hell yeah. Rules. I know. The lead guy was in jail for this. He got caught eventually. Um, but Alianza's like, yeah, we'll take some armed hippies. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Because, like, I forgot to mention it earlier. It slipped out of my script somewhere. They had, like, a bunch of, like, sawed-off shotguns under their floorboards oh and shit God. like that the whole time. <laughs> Um, and they, but it got more and more stressful for them every time they have to like move crash pads they'd have to like unhide their stash of firearms and move it to the next place yeah. and <laughs> and uh, which is funny because like we uh, the the current gun culture acts like America's always been crazy armed we are way more crazy armed now than we were in the late 60s oh yeah way more anyway Alianza's like yeah we'll take you fucking hippies we're waiting kind of waiting for our chance to do our thing again we're happy to have you around the motherfuckers are like yeah we want to like throw down for the rev and live off grid and they were really shitty at being back to the landers but they gave it their all (laughs) and then they kind of start drifting apart at this point I mean a lot of them I don't even think came with them right but some of the motherfuckers formed their own like bandit gangs just kind of unrelated to everything else they were like look at the end of the day like some of them were like kind of like more like, I'm an art guy. And some of them were like, I'm a crime girl. And some of them were like, I'm just a fucking, like, I'm into gang shit. And, you know, it's like, they're all very different backgrounds. And as each person felt, some of them drifted off to become bandits, many of whom died pretty immediately uh, in, like, shootouts with the cops and stuff. One died because he, his leg got hurt and he refused to go to a doctor. Uh, and he got, he got infected. Mm. And then he died Oof. of sepsis. Many of them drifted away to go be hippies at the like peace and love hippie communes after like a year of hanging out where like neighbors who didn't like the radicals would shoot at them and shit. Osha Newman at this point, the the other person who I have a lot of his writing about, um, he went and lived at a hippie commune um, and later he became the movement lawyer. Ben Morea, he lived anonymously for 38 years out West. He just was like, I'm good. He spent a while, like him and his wife, who's like left out of all the writing, I think on purpose, because she's like also into this anonymous thing, you know? Um, They like just ride around on horses for like fucking years. (laughs) And then they're like, yeah, fuck it. Let's become homesteaders. And they're homesteaders for a long time. And, and the motherfuckers are done, but their legacy lives on in so many ways. Basically, I promised you, this is how the aesthetics of punk rock come to be. Black Mask, 
influenced a sister project in the UK called King Mob. I didn't include King Mob as much because honestly, a lot of their um, rhetoric is more sexist. And I'll probably talk at some point. They'll probably end up in something at some point. They weren't like, I don't know, whatever. King Mob directly influenced Malcolm McLaren, who's the guy who produced the Sex Pistols and the New York Dolls. Like the guy who basically like kind of did a lot of the punk shit. And it all traces back to Black Mask. The aesthetics of their publications and shit Hmm. um, give us punk rock. And I think it's cool because then we can tra- trace Black Mask back to its roots to the anarchists of the Spanish Civil War. At one point, Ben met with some old vets from the Youth Brigade in the Spanish Civil War, and they were like, motherfuckers, we're motherfuckers too. We're hijos de putas. <laughs> we're the sons of whores. That rules. <laughs> yeah, and like, because this spirit has p- been part of these movements, even like, like the anarchic spirit within anarch within larger anarchist movements, you know, yeah. the like the slightly more fuck you crowd. But they're the fuck you crowd who doesn't want to dose people and like just looks out and protects people. Whatever. I'm really excited. <laughs> Is that, I can't keep thinking about that line that was like uh uh hip 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 what was it? It was yeah, hippies are mean people pretending to be nice and punks are nice people pretending to be mean. <laughs> yeah. These people are like the hippie punks. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. And they were like, they are mean, they're nice people pretending to be mean and they, they fucking did it up. And, and I'm going to end with something that Ben Morea said in an interview more recently. Part of the reason I reemerged after more than 30 years of anonymity to talk about what we did back in the 1960s is the fact that things have gotten so bad in the U.S., It's at the point where you can't ignore it. It's worse than ever. I figured that I'd start letting people know about our history and then go from there. All I can tell people is that when when it looked pretty dismal in the past, we took action and it did have an effect. A lot was achieved, and yet a few years beforehand, no one would have expected that we could take on the behemoth of American capitalism. It's counterproductive to sit back and say, you can't do anything. It's not my place to tell people exactly what they should do, but there has always been some way to respond and take to take action. Just look around. And like yeah, that, that that is a great line. Yeah, and and the stuff that he talks about that they accomplished, you know, because he came he came out of anonymity because because the history was not there or was there in ways that did not match his understanding of what had happened. Um, that's my most diplomatic way of saying this. <laughs> and he talks about how like. Look, there's a cultural difference. Um, you know, they were they started off with like 80% of the US is it for the Vietnam War, right? But compared to the percent of the US that was against the Iraq War, like they they did make cultural change. Um, not these 50 people, although yes them too, but this movement that they threw their fucking all into. Um and and I, I think it's worth noting something about Iraq, right? Mm-hmm. If, if if you look, if you go back to, like I remember his party, but if if you go back to the plans for the Iraq War, a huge part of like and this, like why the Iraq War went the course it did, and also the reason they didn't just sort of like like the, the U.S. killed an enormous number of people in Iraq, right? Mm-hmm. The U.S. also didn't do sort of like Vietnam style saturation bombing. Oh, that's and, true. Part of the re- and this is everything, right? The, the you know part part of this had to do with neoliberal ideology, but like we actually didn't send physically that many troops there, mm-hmm. and there, and you know this this whole thing was always packaged as like we're going to send in like a surgical team. It's it's going to be like a, a smaller invasion force, and you know if if you, if you listen back to like 
like if you go back and read the arguments about it, like the generals think this is a bad idea, but the, the Bush administration specifically pushes for this. And the reason they do that is because that they think if they if they actually try to send like five million people into Iraq, there's going to be there's going to be an uprising. And yeah. that that is like, you know, that that is in some sense an enduring legacy of Vietnam of like like the US military is scared to unleash its actual full capacity because they're still sort of they're still haunted by the memory of like half of their army being in revolt. Yeah. And that that that's a real game that's invisible, right? It's almost impossible un- unless you're sort of like, you know, cuz cuz like the cuz Iraq war was like it was a horror, right? And same with the war yeah. in Afghanistan. Like these things were horror shows, but you know, if if you if you look at their sort of war planning docs, it's like this could have actually been way worse. No, that's and, so you know, interesting that's, to me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing I think it's really, really not understood very well. Yeah. And there, there was a branch of like, you know, this is actually weird. This, this is the group of people who Trump comes from. But there was a branch of people who were like harder core than the neocons who were like, like Midge Dector, people mm-hmm. who were talking about like this thing called, they, they call it like the Nicaragua option, which is like, we're going to kill like one in every 10 people. Which Jesus. is like, we're just, you know, this is where, yeah. And, and, they, and the US doesn't do it, right? Mm-hmm. Like the US doesn't kill like every person in Iraq. And the reason they don't do that has a lot to do with this kind of stuff in ways that are just sort of invisible now, but did happen. No, that's so interesting to me. Like I, 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 I hadn't considered it from that point of view. I, I think about, cause like I threw a lot of work into um, trying to stop the Iraq war as part of a movement that, you know, used direct action to interrupt the flows of capital. And, and, you know, I'm, we were very proud of our like tactical wins, right? But in the end, we were like, we threw the largest day of demonstrations the world has ever seen, and it didn't change anything. We, you know, um, Portland kind of came in second. Like the bay shut down for like three days. We only shut down Portland for like twelve hours or something, you know. But we shut down like every highway in Portland and like. Um, and massive numbers of the city just came out and, you know, used diversity of tactics and, and we were all proud, but then we were like, well, we didn't do shit. It's, it's, it was very demoralizing. And one of the things that I've been, um, learning as I get older is the impacts that we did have, um, that I didn't see. There's an essay called the shock of victory by David Graeber. That talks about this, um, that did me a lot of good because it talks about the things that the ultra globalization movement that I was also part of um, succeeded at and ending sort of parts of the neoliberal consensus. And I was like, oh, thank God all my trauma isn't literally for nothing. Yeah. And I think it's, it's really, it's really, really, really difficult to see how things could have been worse. Yeah, it's, because it's because it's really like, bad. Like, like, if you look at how bad everything yeah. is, right? Yeah, but it's like, you know, like the there, you know, for example, like there the, there is a world where the U.S. sends like ten million. I don't know, not, not, not ten million, but the U.S. sends like an enormous army into Iraq. They roll over Iraq, and you know, Bush Bush pushes into Iraq. Right, right. Like there there are there are worlds that are enormously worse than this right. one. There, there's there's the world. I mean. Like for a while, like there, there were there were real calls to like just start dropping nukes in Iraq during yeah. 2004. Like, and that that like you know it, it the, the fact that it could have been worse doesn't mitigate how bad it was, but it, it's really really hard to see, you know, and stuff, stuff like the fact that like ever like no like the U.S. hasn't been able to do like bilateral trade agreements anymore. Really, like we have well not bilateral. Sorry, they they haven't been able to do like the sort of massive. 
uh, NAFTA style trade agreement. Yeah. They, they tried one in East Asia and it didn't, it fell through. It, it didn't yeah. collapse. It didn't work. And it, it's, it's really difficult to see that that, that probably saved an enormous number of lives, but we'll never, right. you know, we'll never know how many because, you know, like, because we didn't, because that reality didn't happen. Yeah, no, totally. And, and then even, you know, like thinking back through all the stuff they did, right? Like every kid who came in and was like, I'm having a bad trip and got pulled out of it by a motherfucker who was like, great, I'm an experienced trip sitter, you know, um, or like, and every draft dodger who got a new ID is one less soldier in Vietnam, one less, at least one less dead person on one side or the other, you know, like... And every meal that you feed for 300 people is 300 people who didn't go hungry that night. And so it's like, it's cool to like recognize both the immediate direct wins and the long-term effects, even if, um, even if it seems like, okay, they were around for three years and then they were gone and then they all lived in the desert and, you know, um, so... Yeah. I will say, I also, I think they, they they had a very anarchisty end. Like, I feel like that's how most anarchist projects sort of like, yeah. I don't know, people just sort of walk away, which which is both, I think, good and bad. Like, there, there, there are parts of it that are like, I mean, obviously it's... Yeah, we don't, don't hold know. on like too long. We're not like, we must keep alive this institution that isn't doing anything anymore, you know? Yeah, but simultaneously, it's, I don't know. Sometimes like, we need to, get a, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. But it is, I don't know. <laughs> Everyone going their separate ways is like... It's, 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 I don't know. It, it, it is very anarchist, good and bad. Yeah, totally. Well, that's black masking up against the wall, motherfuckers. And if you just start a street, no, uh, <laughs> nothing. Um, you know, okay. I, I'm going to, I'm going to do my one. This used to be a proper country and remind everyone that <laughs> I, I, yeah. Remind everyone that, that Samuel L. Jackson once held MLK's dad hostage at a university <laughs> demanding that historically black universities like suck less. And people used to like re- people used to just hold like the deans of colleges hostage literally all the time. And that that was just a thing that I accepted. And like, like you can go back and read New York Times reports of some someone will take a dean hostage and it'll be called nonviolent. Because nobody, got, yeah. nobody shot anyone, right? I, like I don't know. Th- th- there are there are things that used to like th- there are things that used to happen that probably like are not impossible even now. And there, I don't know. Like I, I think, like <laughs> uh, up until twenty twenty, right? Like every if you'd ask any radical in the U.S. whether a group of people could burn down a police station, it would be fine. Every single person would have told you one hundred percent of people would have been like, "This is impossible," right? And then you know, and then suddenly it wasn't right, and suddenly like. And like it's you know, and and suddenly, and over the course of like like twenty four hours, the police are like pulling out or like like preparing to burn all of their files in every surrounding police station because they're scared that like they're going to burn another one. So I don't know. Think things that things that were once impossible suddenly stop being impossible very quickly. No, it's interesting because like one of the things that I was thinking about ending with us the opposite. That's maybe me just being old. Is that one of the quotes from Ben? in one of his more recent interviews, is like, yeah, he's like, look, I'm not telling people to do what we did. If you did exactly what we did now, you would die. And I think that there are, both of these things are true. Both that like burning down a police station and having it be more popular than the president, you know, like, I, I don't remember. It was like the approval rating of burning down the third precinct yeah, was, was higher than- Yeah, both of them. Yeah. yeah. So like that, 
would have seemed impossible until it becomes possible by doing it. But at the same time, I do think that like directly copying what people did in a different context is uh, foolish and dangerous. Yeah. And so I think it's like, it's hard to figure out to what degree we temper our actions and to what degree we demand the impossible or whatever. You know, I, I think, I, I don't know. I know we're sort of kind of, I'm, I'm doing the Midwestern thing of saying we're going to end here and then we do like two more hours of stuff. Oh no, we're not doing two more hours of stuff. <laughs> but we're not doing two more hours of stuff. I, we will all die. But there's a thing that you see a lot if you read back in the history of sort of rack movements of like, the, the people who do the coolest shit a lot of the times are just people who've never been in a movement before and something happens and then they just do stuff. Yeah. And you know that like a lot a lot of the people the people who were doing stuff a lot of people who were doing stuff in 2020 were people who had like never like you know, like people who were lighting cop cars on fire people who'd never done this before. And I I I think there's this kind of like I don't know there's this kind of calculus that happens when you've seen the costs and you understand them. Yeah. That makes you do stuff in a way that's working. And you know, there's just good reason for this, right? Like totally. there, is, there is a lot of good reasons to be very, very careful about what you do. But I think there's this way in which not understanding what can happen to you is how a lot of the most radical stuff that happens in the, in sort of like the spur of the moment of a riot happens. I think that that makes a lot of sense. But I think that like, uh, when I think about my own position as someone who, um, you know, spent uh, decades recovering from the trauma that I accumulated by, um, throwing myself into uh, some some rather direct action. You know, it's like, I'm basically at a loss in that I cannot, in good conscience, uh, not yeah. tell people about um, that danger, even though I see what you're talking about. Um, and so, in, in, in most ways, it's simply that my hands are tied, because I also, actually, one of the things I really appreciate about um, Ben's statement at the end, being like, look, it's not my place to tell people exactly what they should do. You know, there's the... Um, I think there's a very specific danger uh, in podcasting and in any kind of uh, talk radio and, and, and anything that's sort of propagandistic in which you're trying to like wink, wink, nudge, nudge about what can be done. And I, I really don't want to do that. But I do think that people should look at their contexts, look at the risks that they feel comfortable with and, and think about them. Uh, but so it's, that's, that's where I'm at is my hands are tied as a, I'm really playing up. This is the episode where I just describe myself as old as many times as possible. Um, <laughs> but yeah, okay, I guess like, my, yeah. my thing with mm -hmm. that is like I think it's like I, I I think like I think there's an extent to which like it's not going to be us that does a lot of this stuff. Right. Like it's not going to be the people who are like who are plugged into the left who do who do a lot of the stuff that will happen. It's going to be people who just have never encountered any of it and. I, I don't know. Like, I think that's a, it's a bad thing in a lot of ways because it's, I don't know, like you, this is something like, like the beginning of every movie, you get a lot of people like taking pictures of themselves doing stuff. And it's like, you, okay, this is going to go really badly for you, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I hate, these are, these are kinds of conversations that I, I think matter, but in a lot of ways, I feel that my position is to not use this platform as a movement strategist. And so that's where I'm at. Um, is that I, I have thoughts yeah, about all sense. of this stuff and uh, and I'm not going to use this platform to describe them because of um, because of my position. But that's not to say that you shouldn't or I'm, I'm not glad that you're talking about it on my, my show. 
just that's that's why my responses are a little bit like yeah it's interesting you know yeah no that that makes sense um (laughs) but if people do want to hear more of what you have to say about all this stuff where can they hear it uh yeah at uh it can happen here the podcast where we talk about stuff (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's a really good podcast anyone who doesn't listen to it should listen to it um yeah there is there is a lot of that's true Um, and and margaret you have a new book i do if you want to hear my opinions about escaping from incel island this Mm -hmm. the adventure story then you can purchase my new book called escape from incel island which comes out february 1st from strangers in the tangled wilderness and you can pre-order it and if you pre-order it you get a super cool poster of the super cool cover the covers by jonas goonface it's amazing um and that's a thing you can do. And uh, pre-orders are like uh, disproportionately impactful on small presses. This is a small press book. And small presses don't have as much capital, and therefore can't get the same discounts at printers. And therefore everything is just like spirals into bad if you don't start off with a bunch of capital. So pre-orders are, are um, disproportionately impactful. That's just, that's mm-hmm. my pitch. We'll be back next week. Stay icy, everyone. Yeah. I don't like it. No, I don't I don't, I don't like, like it, it either. We're done I don't with like it. it. I said it. I didn't this is the like only it. week y'all get to do that. Yep. Bye. Bye. Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.